It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, music journalist and record producer Kurt Gottschalk. Yeah, I'll tell you the moment that I, I got it. Braxton has the reputation, with among a lot of jazz people, of being an egghead, being over-intellectualized and sterile and, you know, too European. And I liked his music, but I, I did fall into some of that sort of thinking it was over-intellectualized. And it was when he had his 11 plus 1 cat, who he was doing his ghost trance music at the time, which allows any musician to point to other musicians and say, let's us three do this composition. So it creates a framework in which they can do Braxton compositions within Braxton compositions. And I knew all of that, and that's still all egg-heady stuff. And I swear, like by the end of the concert, I was very nearly in tears. So I'm watching, I'm like, this is classical anarchy. This is, if we all play by the rules, we all have greater freedom. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Leave comments for us there or email us at Podcast, always with the numeral 2, at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave a review over at our page on iTunes. A few announcements before we begin. This summer, I'm hosting a series of double bills of rare films at Andrew's Video Vault at the Rotunda on the University of Pennsylvania campus on 40th and Market Street in Philadelphia every second Thursday of the month. Up next is July 14th, and we'll feature a First Nations double bill. First is the 1968 film White Comanche from 1968, a film William Shatner made while on hiatus from Star Trek in which he plays, in the parlance of the day, half-breed twin brothers, one who is a gunslinger, one who is a gunslinger, the other, after peyote-fueled visions, believes himself to be the Comanche Messiah. Second on the bill is 1991's Clear Cut, a rare English language feature from the Polish director Rizard Bajazki, concerning a native spirit played by Dances with the Wolves' Graham Green, who takes revenge on a logging exec for his crimes against the forest. Once again, this will be at the Rotunda on Walnut at 40th Street in Philadelphia, Thursday, July 14th at 8 p.m. As this show posts, there's just enough time to register for the film appreciation class I'm teaching at Fleischer Arts Memorial beginning July, starting Thursday evening, July 12th, entitled The Big Tent, Political Campaigns on Film. With the Democratic Presidential Convention touching down among maximum drama, it seemed a great time to revisit a handful of films concerning political campaigns, including Franklin Shafter's 1964 adaptation of Gore Vidal's play The Best Man, featuring Henry Fonda, uh, Michael Ritchie's 1972 classic The Candidate, its screenplay by Eugene McCarthy speechwriter Jeremy Larner, and starring Robert Redford. The War Room, D.A. Pennebacher's documentary on Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign and the 2005 Peabody Award-winning documentary Shirley Chisholm, Unbought and Unbossed, chronicling the 1972 campaign of the first woman and first African-American to launch a major party bid for the presidency. The films will be screened at Fleischer's Beautiful Sanctuary, and you can find out more about the class at Fleischer.org. That's F-L-E-I-S-H-E-R. Org. Now on to our conversation with writer, music journalist, WFMU DJ, and record producer Kurt Gottschalk. Originally out of Illinois, Kurt earned a master's degree at Columbia School of Journalism in 1997 
and he's written about art and politics for All About Jazz, Signal to Noise, Time Out New York, The Village Voice, The Wire, and publications in Canada, France, Germany, Ireland, Portugal, and Russia. He has twice been recognized for Best Feature Writing by the Connecticut Society of Professional Journalists, and he also has hosted the miniature Minotaur radio show on WFMU. He's the author of two works of fiction, Little Apples, A Story Cycle, and Sentences. And Kurt's story on guitarist Lauren Connor is the cover story of the June 2016 issue of the British magazine The Wire. I became familiar with Kurt in the most modern of ways, a mutual Facebook friend neither of us really knew, saw our shared interest and recommended that we become Facebook friends. We both have avid interest in jazz music, 20th century rock and pop music, and experimental sounds. We met for lunch about a year ago when Kurt was down from New York for a Philadelphia trip, and we planned to meet up in the early summer for a show from the Philadelphia Chamber Choir, The Crossing, so I took that opportunity to sit down with Kurt to record a conversation at the show's kitchen table studio. We discussed Kurt's love for the avant-gardist Anthony Braxton, as well as his record-collecting roots, getting cheated by the Kiss Army, living in Chicago in the 90s, John Zorn's New York, Kurt's work with guitarist Lauren Connors, the late Bernie Worrell, and being visited by Prince in Dreams. Kurt is a pretty relaxed fellow. He gives the conversation a certain ease. Let's head over now. I'm here with Kurt Gottschall, music journalist and uh, writer. Uh, he's written uh, at length for The Wire and numerous Time Out, numerous publications, and uh, we have him here down in Philadelphia where we're, he's attending a, a musical event. Uh, welcome to the uh, the show here, Kurt. Thank you. Glad to be back in Philly. You also uh, do uh, the show Miniature Minotaurs. On, at on, WFMU, yeah. At yeah. WFMU. I was reading uh, a bio for you online, and it said that you were, uh, you know, uh, very uh, focused in the post-Cage Eiler uh, world of oh, music. That's actually a, a quote that I stole from Anthony Braxton that I really like. Uh, that he refers that? to the um, post-Cage, post-Eiler continuum. Uh-huh. And that seems to circle something that covers a lot of what I'm interested in. Yeah, I like yeah. That, that terminology a lot. And that's, that's sort of the... the, the the uh, cornerstone or between uh, sort of free jazz and, and uh, what is sometimes, I'm, I'm really using terms here that everybody can dis- disagree with. Free <laughs> jazz. There. And, they are terms. And, they point a direction. And what I always call 20th century classical, because I'm about 16 years out of time, but, <laughs> but uh, modern classical, I mean, that's, that's uh, the crossroads where a lot of your music interest. Yeah, uh, or at least, you know, if you look at Eiler and Cage and whatever we, we imagine between them, it's certainly thinking of different ways to approach structuring music mm-hmm. you know and i think that's what the overlay is really about and then the fact that that quote comes from anthony braxton who's the master of that you know that sort of creates a nice triangulation and you're you're a real braxton scholar i mean aren't you i i wouldn't want to say scholar <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm a an enthusiast an enthusiast yeah. uh, how many how many braxton recordings do you think you might have in your collection 
Wow. Um, they have their own shelf. There you go. Uh, <laughs> on the wall, hanging on the wall, but behind glass, sliding glass doors. Uh, what? what? Two hundred and fifty, maybe. I don't wow. know. There I have you, no idea. There you go. Not a scholar, just a casual <laughs> interest in Anthony. For Braxton, Braxton. that's kind of casual. I, I, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm one of those rare people that I kind of feel like you know most people with Braxton, you either all in or, or or all out. I have a, a scattering of his music, but I have to admit, there's something. I think it's it, it leans on that modern classical side for me when it when it when it falls uh, uh, into into uh, non rhythmic music mm. uh, like I think I I get a little bit lost. But tell me about your 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 love of Braxton and, and your appreciation. Well, I'll t- yeah, I'll tell you the moment that I I got it, and I was able to later talk about Braxton, talk with Braxton about this, and and he felt as if I was uh, catching something or. or you know, isolating something. So I guess it's it's fair game to say. Um, and I was, you know, I've, I've long been, I've very long been, as long as I've been a fan of jazz, I've been a fan of the uh, Association for Advancement of Creative Music Musicians, uh, the ACM, and I discovered them when I moved to Chicago right after college. And Braxton was a part of that. Braxton has the reputation in a, with among a lot of jazz people of being an egghead, of being over-intellectualized and sterile and, you know, too... European, which is a weird thing we don't need to try and unpack. And I liked his music, but I, I did fall into some of that sort of thinking it was over-intellectualized or something mm-hmm. like that. And it was, you know, in terms of my listening, not that long ago, 2002 or something maybe, when he had his 11 plus one tet, and I saw him at the Victoriaville Festival. He did, I think, three different performances at that festival. But one of them is with you know, his 12 musicians who he was doing his ghost trance music at the time, which allows any musician within the group to sort of call a group, point to other musicians, and say, let's us three do this composition, another numbered composition of Braxton's. So it creates a framework in which they can do Braxton compositions within Braxton compositions. And I knew all of that, and that's still all eggheady stuff. Um, but I'm watching it, and all of a sudden, and I swear, like by the end of the concert, I was very nearly in tears. Because I'm watching him, I was like, this is classical anarchy. This is what they're doing. This isn't insane free jazz anarchy. This is if we all play by the rules, we all have greater freedom. And it's just this sort of beautiful microcosm of, of this humanity that I think Braxton really believes in very deeply. And, you know, creating a kind of order of each individual contributing to the greater good, which works better if you have rules than if you have you know, if, then if everybody's just trying to be the loudest. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's sort of when I got it. Once, once I felt that I had a way in, you know, there's some things I like better than others, but that's when I really was, was drawn into it, yeah. Has he gone further in that sort of exploration of, of uh, you know, composing music in that manner? Uh, yeah, he's got, what is it called? Uh, I don't want to get the, the names of his projects wrong. Echo Echo Mirror House? I didn't know I was going to be on here as a Braxton scholar. Um, but he has one project where all the musicians have iPods uh-huh. or iPad, iPods, iPods, and they can play any Braxton composition, a recording mm-hmm. within the structure of it. That gets pretty crazy. That's that's a challenging listen. And, and yeah, and there's other ways he's sort of worked with that idea. Wow. Yeah. Uh, how, how old is he now? Uh, 68, maybe, I'm going to guess. Wow, yeah. Uh, it, it has been a, a fascinating career. I do try and, and keep up with where he's going. Um. Mm-hmm. 
but but uh, I, I'd be curious to to step back. I mean, I, when you think of uh, some of the headiest, most profound music that uh, is being made, you'd, you'd think of music along these lines of Braxton and these modern experimenters. But but uh, I'm sure that's not where you started listening to to music. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't start with Braxton. <laughs> Where, at the other end, where at the beginning, oh, what, what, what were the early the tinklings? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I had songs I liked, and I would buy 45s and, and whatnot. And I remember... Um, How old are you at this point? Oh, the first time I bought any sort of record, five or six years old, I guess. Yeah. Um, I remember buying... Um, you know, it's around the time, like, Gonna Fly Now, and whatever these sorts of movie songs were very big in the mid-70s. And I remember buying, me and my sister each bought a record at J.C. Penney's or Kmart or something. And we got home and I was listening to it, like, these sound weird. And look, reading it, and I was appalled that they could sell records that sound like the original artist. Oh, you know? okay. <laughs> I was like, how can they do this? is not right. Yeah, there were um, a string of, uh, you know, the King's yeah. Road, I think, were one, where they would do imitations of all the pop Right, hits. right. And they would sound sort of like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you know, pretty good, I guess. Better than I could do, but didn't trick an eight-year-old or however old I The first time I really got into a group, I met a kid in fourth grade, third or fourth grade, named Eric. Stayed friends forever. We're still in contact. And he was a little bit um, ahead of the curve in, in rock and roll to the, to, than me. And he um, I went over to his house after school and... He had Steppenwolf Live, and he had Kiss, Dressed to Kill. Ah. And Dressed to Kill is the Kiss record that has them in sort of suit and tie with their makeup, a black and white photo of them out, out on uh, New York Street, I assume New York. And that just really, the 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 image, of, it, of course, right? But um, the sort of sensational aspect of it really hit me. And then the power of the music, you know, which isn't nearly as powerful today sounding but back then it was you know it was very exciting for an eight-year-old and so i very systematically decided i'm going to go and buy kiss's first record and save up my allowance like in north their second record and i went through and bought them all one at a time <laughs> that would be kiss uh uh okay dress to kill and uh, strutter than hell hotter than hell that's right um i think dress to kill second hot and hell is third and then alive then Destroyer, Rock and Roll All Night, Love Gun, Alive 2, <laughs> and then Dynasty. And that's when I fell off. Yeah, I mean, those were, uh, you know, in, in my small southern New Jersey town, they, they uh, hit with a wallop as well. I remember uh, my uh, m- one of my closest friends, who was uh, a gangly, uh, awkward, redheaded kid, had a, a playroom, which was completely covered with color pictures that he'd cut out of Circus and <laughs> circus, Cream. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, a giant kiss, you know, mural made there. But he got caught shoplifting, and the punishment from his mother was he had to take down all of his kiss pictures. Oh, no. Yeah, those were my walls, too, completely covered with kiss. (laughs) And then I discovered um, Aerosmith. Okay. And Eric, I I went to Eric. I was like, I knew that this was a big deal. I was like, I think I'm going to like another band. And he's like, no, man, we're KISS fans. And I was like, no, check out, check out Aerosmith. Said, no, man, no. <laughs> were you in the KISS army? Did you sign up for the fan club? I sent my $5 in, and I didn't get anything back. Oh. Damn, yeah. Gene. Damn you, Gene. <laughs> How many $5 bills did he get from kids? 
Uh, for me, it was really that connection to to uh, horror films. I, actually, my brother was into Alice Cooper, and that mm-hmm. was another one because I was into famous monsters of Filmland and Hammer films and the old Universal films that they 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 fit right in that horror element. Sure, sure, uh, sure. Spitting blood. I mean, all that was <laughs> I, at the time too. I mean, they were. Uh, it was hard to get. Uh, you know, you to, to see Kiss. It wasn't like they were on TV. It wasn't like today. You didn't have any access to oh, them. Right. They were they were somewhat mysterious. And it was amazing that you know you'd step to watch Don Kirshner's rock concert or Midnight Special or something and see musicians moving. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the musicians only lived in photographs. Yeah, yeah. You would stare. That, yeah, that's why those album covers sort of became so important. I mean, right. One of the few connections uh, to them. So so where did, uh, what was, after Kiss, did they, was it them that led you anywhere, or was it another strain of influence that took over? I guess that after, you know, shortly after that, I started just opening up a lot. And I th- think some other kid introduced me to ELO, which then took me back to the Beatles, and once I started listening, you know, of course I knew who the Beatles were, but once I started buying Beatles records, I think that's when I sort of said, okay, let's have this historical perspective to whatever degree my little Midwestern brain could handle, but let's look at, let's try and look at a lot of music, you yeah, know. Yeah. But certainly the Beatles was right for so many people. I was like, oh, this is how good it can get. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I remember the uh, illustrated uh, history of rock, the Rolling Stone illustrated a history the, of rock and the roll. The huge one with the red cover? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. At my library, I, I took it out numerous times with this full, uh, full page pictures, but it, at least it was like an early construction of trying to put together where this music came from that was right. important for me as a goofy kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like there's no way to hear it except buy a record and five dollars. You've got to pick carefully. Yeah, yeah. And you wanted to get your money's worth. Right. I mean, you really wanted to learn every song and really, you know, know the record, you know. Um, but the whole concept of, of learning a record and knowing a record is something, you know, I sort of take for granted today. And I'm not sure if, uh, you know, that's what audiences do anymore consume a, a you know, 40 minute work from a, no, no. I mean, from a pop artist. The Beatles were, there, there were three or four group acts that had more than five hits off of an album up until the 2000s. And now everybody does. Yeah. Because you just buy single songs off iTunes. The album doesn't even sell. But <laughs> Rihanna will easily have five or six hits off a record because it's built that way. Uh, yeah, I, I wonder, it's getting harder and harder to sort of find you CDs of... Uh, you know, big pop acts anymore right, right. because I don't think there's as many in circulation. As or even new ones like when that ago. when the um. I mean, I, I try and go to shops rather than buy online. Mm-hmm. When that Velvet Underground um, Live at the Matrix came out, store no store had it. Yeah, you know, I'm trying the shops in New York. Like, oh, we got a few, but it's gone. Are you gonna get more? I don't know. You know, <laughs> you know that's a significant release, and it's just uh, the whole. I'm not saying anything with knowledge. It's just different. It's all I'm saying. It's like if there's a big release out. Can't I go to a record store and get it? Yeah. No. I'm, no. I'm still waiting for a, a CD of the Kanye West uh, new record to come out. <laughs> there's no official release to that yet. Uh, there's a, I've seen vinyl, which I've I heard is actually bootleg. Oh, really? But uh, I'm not sure if there's, it's, it exists in the physical world yet, the new Kanye West record. Wow, wow. Um, so you're talking about record stores. Record stores is another uh, usual uh, for men of our generation with yes. uh, <laughs> coming of age. Men of a certain age. <laughs> Uh, but what was what? What town did you grow up? Well, that yeah, and that's really a good segue for for the life story I guess we're doing of me, which is <laughs> okay. Um, I grew up in Springfield, Illinois, and 
it was when the uh, 4Kiss solo records came out. That was a problem. That's a lot to afford, right? Yeah, sure. And then, you know, are you really going to get, do you want them all? But, you know, being this completist, it's like, well, I have to have all four. The covers look the same, right? Um, Did you have to choose which ones to get first? That was a thing I remember. You know, I might have only, well, me and my friend Eric, I think we split. I think I got Peter and Paul and he got Ace and Gene. I'm trying to, um, trying to remember, think who made out. I think he made out best. He did, he? yeah. <laughs> yeah, Aces, I think, was by far the best of the yeah, four. Yeah. But uh, so I was at the mall where I would go do my music shopping, and this kid told me, not a kid I knew, I, I, you know, but this kid told me that there's this other store where they're cheaper. And it was three-quarter mile away, you know, but it wasn't, it was just, you know, I didn't drive. I didn't know the, the you know, places. <laughs> and so I got my mom to take me over there and that became a regular stop for me is Apple Tree Records. And there's these guys and through the magic of Facebook, I'm really happy to be back in touch with them. And I've seen them both in the last couple of years, uh, John and Danny. And I started going there every week and I would um, go in with my money from my after school job and buy whatever they told me to buy. What was your after school job? Oh, I was... Um, uh, an assistant janitor sort of at this apartment <laughs> building. Mostly I was just like taking out all the garbage cans and yeah. dumping them in the dumpster. And the next question, then, what, did, what did Danny and... Uh, they and, would... Um, introduce you to. You know, I, the weird thing was, I don't know how they got this power over me or maybe I just thought the power was there and I never questioned it. But I, whatever they gave me, I would buy. And they'd give me like... I know that they gave me um, David Bowie's Lodger and maybe Devo's first record. Those two I remember saying, like, no. Like, I saw that on Saturday Night Live. That's weird, you know? But I, I still had to buy it. Yeah. And I grew to like it. They gave me, I mean, what else? Uh, Kate Bush they probably turned me on to. They're sort of giving me artier stuff. And then by the time I got to high school, I met this this kid, Tom, who also had been going to Apple Tree, but they had pegged him as a punk. So they're giving <laughs> him the jam and the clash and stuff. And then we started, you know, and then that like by high school, you're meeting other kids and everybody's taping each other's records. But... Danny and John, I think, were responsible for a lot of the musical enlightenment of Springfield, Illinois. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, there are those wizards. That, you know, most people I know are seriously into music have a have a few in their lives. Yeah, um, and yeah, I didn't have older siblings, so it was. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was the youngest, so. Uh, you benefited from records left when they went to college. And... Yeah, somewhat. My brother, in particular, he had the Alice Cooper records, mm. and the, he had Hot Rocks when I was, you know, probably seven or something. Wow. So yeah, yeah, really crucial really um, you know I wish his I remember he came home in like 1976 I think and said he was at his friend's house and uh, another friend of his who's really into music came and said this new band was really great and he paid him played him the Ramones record <laughs> and my brother was like El Stinko like worst record ever <laughs> right, like, right. no solos like they're just horrible <laughs> So uh, you know there were there were there were limitations to the the wizards in my life. <laughs> you really like my limousine. You like the way the wheels roll. You like my seven-inch leather heels. I'm going to all of the shows. But do you love me?
so was there what kind of school did you go to was there a place for a rock nerd to to ply his uh, knowledge uh, amongst uh, the high school class <laughs> in Springfield Illinois uh, no I don't think so um there was maybe seven or eight of us like punk weirdos and we'd hang out together but you know we were really felt very you know Isolated. There was a guy that moved, um, that came to our school from California, and he'd always look at us and be like, um, this is a podcast, right? We can swear. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> he'd always he'd look at us and look at me. I remember him just like, fucking Devo. <laughs> and I thought that was so weird. I was like, yes, I like Devo. What are you talking about? And years and years later, not so long ago, I heard an interview with uh, Jerry Casale, and he was talking about how Devo was so hated that the word Devo became um, derogatory slang for someone who's gay. Oh, wow. Which I'd never even heard that before, but yeah. I, I guess in California or wherever this kid was from, that's what <laughs> I remember seeing Devo on, I think, a Saturday Night Live performance for the first time. And I was maybe 11 or something, but I, I remember finding him kind of scary. I was very scared. I actually, I, I remember that, yeah. And they, it started with, it opened with the, um, the film of Bougie Boy uh-huh. and the general, whatever. And then it cut to... I had gone to sleep watching Saturday Night Live and woke up, and I, so I wasn't sure if this was still Saturday Night Live. And I was just like, what's going on? You know, all the lights are out, the rest of the family's gone to sleep, and I'm just laying there like, this isn't right. I'm sure in some way I was looking for like a role model. You know, I wanted to be uh, you know, Southside Johnny or somebody or whatever, but like, Diva was like, I, I don't want to be a robot. You know, it was, <laughs> no, it was scary. It was scary. It's like, what if they're right about the future? What if this is going to happen? You know? <laughs> yeah, and wearing the jumpsuits. I mean, the whole thing was yeah. was was, uh, was an odd... That was an intense band. ...bag of ideas. Yeah. Uh, so who were your bands in high school? Where you, you must have, uh, you know, fell into some camp uh, by, the, by that point. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I liked the Brits. You know, I, I think I really liked Elvis Costello and The Clash. Would, I'd probably say were my favorites back then. What, what years are these when you're in high school? I graduated in 84. Yeah. Um, I was 83 myself. Okay. And, uh, you know, Central Illinois, we didn't get, like, the stuff that was all that obscure, you know. I loved Talking Heads, but stuff, you know, that's all kind of the main, mainstream of Punk New Wave. Yeah, they were all major labels. Yeah. And they had distribution. Uh, yeah. Right, right, right. So that's how it got to Illinois. Other stuff, yeah, I didn't know. I'd go down to St. Louis or to Chicago sometimes, so I'd, I'd manage to get stuff like X-Ray Specs and the Slits and some other things, but... Yeah, the Brits were big to me. Oh, for, for me, I, I finally discovered uh, uh, non-commercial radio in 1980, and WXPN out of the University of Pennsylvania had one show, 10 o'clock Sunday nights, uh, with Lee Paris and Roy Kafka. Uh, I forget Roy Kafka's real name, but his father worked for the airlines, and so mm-hmm. he could fly <laughs> to London on Friday and pick up the, the latest records from London and bring them back and play them on the oh, Sunday wow. night show. Wow. He had Sandinista like a week before it came out, I think, or something. But uh, <laughs> Amazing. that was a that laid lie to the whole sort of like ultra cool 70s FM <laughs> world that was uh, exposed, supposedly dominant to suddenly discover the slits and uh, right, right, right. all that stuff was, uh, you know, completely mind blowing to me as a 15 year old. Yeah.
So uh, you were off to school, and uh, um, I imagine the, the the interest deepened. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's back up for a moment because I want to talk about then. Because um, I want to talk about Bernie Worrell then. So Absolutely. Let's, let's, let's get this in at this Bernie point. Worrell. Sure. Um, uh, he just uh, we should say he just uh, passed away yeah. yesterday as we were. Record this, the great keyboardist for Funkadelic, an unofficial member of the Talking Heads, and you know, just one of the funkiest musicians ever. Amazing, yeah, amazing. A Juilliard trained, and I think somebody who gets a lot of credit in pushing keyboards into far beyond sounding like other instruments. And just is really one of the people who's like, what can we make this do? Like, how far can we push it? Just a really amazing guy. Um, do you know what kind of keyboards he was sort of specialized in playing? I think Mini Moog is yeah. part of, uh, and he had the he thing. had the Moog bass synth as well because that's what you hear on Flashlight. Okay, um, but no, especially specifically, I don't know really. Uh-huh. But you know, for me, it was really somewhat the Rolling Stones, and but very much Talking Heads, sort of introducing me to you know, which I don't don't know if I thought of it this way exactly, but you know, to black music. Yeah, and um, probably then like the Rolling Stone Illustrated History or something was what ended up pointing us to P-Funk. I'm not sure. But got some of those records back when, you know, they weren't in print anywhere, but you could find them used sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, George Clinton created this um, huge, this unbelievable empire, right? Like in the late 70s, he had, what, five bands going at once maybe? And, you know, Parliament and Funkadelic and the Brides of Funkenstein and Parley. And Bootsy's Rubber Band, to some extent, he was still involved with that. Oh, incredible live backs as well. And, um, you know, I think Bernie Worrell, I don't think you can give him too little credit in coming in right at the beginning and saying, no, we're going to make this bigger than the world. You know, we're going to go to outer space with this. (laughs) You know, seriously, I mean, he had this sort of the knowledge and the talent to say, to take these ideas George had, because George doesn't play instruments. He's brilliant in his way. Uh But I think... I don't know if they would have been half of what they were without somebody like Bernie Worrell. Saying, Absolutely. This yeah. is how we, we can build that. And then the amazing thing I love about him is at the same time you have all of that, he's like, he just squiggles on top of music. And it's like, you know, like you've got this whole song going on. And he's like, you know, and I was thinking last night, I was thinking about this. I was thinking like, it's like, it's like a Marx Brothers routine. It's like a Groucho Marx scene where you have the two lovers and they're having this intense conversation. And that's the movie. That's what you need. You don't need Groucho. And Groucho's under them going, nah, 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 nah. Just wisecracking back and forth and contributing nothing to the plot, right? You could take Groucho out of that scene and it would, the scene would still happen. But Groucho's the whole reason the scene is good. Yeah, yeah. And that's like what Bernie's doing. He's just like, this is the this little squiggles over stuff that just makes it brilliant. Yeah, I mean, both him and Bootsy, there's a sense of humor that you yeah. know can come out completely non-verbally through just what they're playing. Boot, yeah. Boot, what's amazing about Bootsy is in his bands in the in the rubber band, he had a bassist because <laughs> he's not playing bass. He's doing his. He's being Bootsy with a bass. I don't think I was necessarily aware of that. Yeah, he needed somebody else just to do the boom, boom, boom because because <laughs> he's got his thing going on, whatever it is, you know.
My discovery with that stuff was uh, uh, desperately trying to in- increase the uh, the landscape in which I would find a girl who might possibly like me. And you I, thought Funkadelic <laughs> would do that? I thought I I would. I Let should, me play you, Baby Freak of the Week. <laughs> I thought I should branch out to the dance in the next town over. I see the YMCA dance, and maybe uh. I would find this you know unicorn of a woman that, that <laughs> supposedly existed out there. But I did discover that was uh, I grew up in a very white town. I, this was a very you know uh, mixed town and, and very you know uh, a big african-american population and uh, their dances were playing music our dances weren't playing you know we were playing you know rocky mountain way or whatever (laughs) at their dance you know one nation under a groove that 12 inch oh man you know just blasting you know kind of club style in the in the ymca utility room uh, with you know 150 200 kids in there was you know and probably really good acoustics right inc- well, <laughs> it, it, it couldn't have been Quality any PA more and- it couldn't have been any more bone shaking than what it was to me I don't know what the, in, in my mind the acoustics are sparklingly clear because those records certainly got across but to, uh-huh. to discover what all the the black kids in the county were listening to you know it was a lot of lakeside and gap band and and you know right, right. a whole range of things that weren't being played at my school and, and that really set my taste into a, a you know a little bit of a blacker path and knowing the music I was listening to as a teen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was the kids from Votech who listened to those records who were you know sort of you know looked down upon as you know these kids going into the into the trades where they would become much richer than everybody I know right. <laughs> um, but uh, at the Votech that was much more of a mixed population there and so I remember a friend of mine's brother getting the Brides of Frankenstein or Brides of Frankenstein records and, uh, you know, just really curious about what that could even possibly be, you know. But <laughs> right, a, right. A, amazing revelations. But Bernie Worrell, yeah. he. Uh, and you've, you've really listened to a lot of his, I, I've certainly kind of lost track of him over the years, but you've listened to some of the projects he's done in the last 20 years as well. Some, yeah. I mean, I haven't kept, there's a, a lot of stuff that just seeing like what people have been posting on Facebook and whatever over you know, the last 24 hours. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know. Yeah, he worked with Laswell a lot, as Bill Laswell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, some great, yeah, the Praxis, that project was, um, initially, the name Praxis sort of got used for different things, but that initial lineup of Laswell, Buckethead, Bernie Worrell, Brain, and one other person, I think. I don't, yeah, I'm not sure, but that was an amazing band. Yeah. So, uh, could we move on to college and uh, and what kind of man you're shaping up to be as you uh, <laughs> leave your teen years? Um, I don't know if college is but a did huge you go? step in my listening. Okay, did you go to college? I'm I did. For I granted, did. yeah, yeah. Um, still in Central Illinois, and what were you studying? Um, ended up with this is how smart I was. Was I ended up with a major in philosophy, and I didn't know that you're supposed to have a plan with what you're going to do with that, you know? <laughs> I think it seems apparent, and once you become a philosophy graduate... Somebody's going to give me a job, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, for college, I think I was sort of extending and expanding the basic things that I, I'd been listening to. It was really after college, I moved to Chicago and got a job with some, you know, environmental nonprofit uh, doing fundraising, is when I discovered live jazz. Okay. And that was like the first... Yeah, you know, I, I was starting to listen to some jazz and, you know... Roommates had Coltrane and and Monk, and I had some Mingus records, so I, I knew some jazz, but I didn't know live jazz, you know. Yeah, what what year is this that you get to Chicago? Uh, ninety. Ninety. Um, I'm trying, and uh, I recently read that AACM book that George 
George Lewis made. Uh, it's a brilliant book. Yeah, it's, it's everyone read it. It's really <laughs> the, the name of it again, I always. Uh, uh, Power stronger than itself. Power stronger than itself. And yeah. What is it? The ACM and the history of American experimental music. That's not quite right, but something like that. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Really, a cornerstone book if you're interested in, in this music. But I, I, I love the way he points out, you know, just how much energy there still was in the ACM. Yeah. In 1990, there was sort of another school of musicians that, that stepped forward. Uh, I can imagine that might have been who you were seeing in yeah, Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. I time. mean, they, you know, that those musicians. You know, when I lived in Chicago, everybody would talk so proudly of the musicians who left, and I thought it was odd. You know, and you know Lester Bowie and Anthony Braxton, Henry Threadgill, and and Roscoe Mitchell, and all these greats. You know, as if you know we were proud parents, and our children had all gone off into the world. And I feel like that sort of generation, that's still there. You know, didn't quite get a fair shake. Of like, Ed Wilkerson um, is somewhat known. Mwata Bowden is an amazing, amazing saxophonist who just is not very well known outside Chicago. Hasn't recorded that much. Ari Brown has recorded more somewhat. Kahil Elzabar is not quite as, as associated with the ACM, but um, but certainly plays with some of the members. And he, he um, yeah, I used to see him a lot. Um, I'll, I'll buy anything he does. I'm, I'm, oh, yeah, yeah. Been, you know, he's, he's right in, in, in the pocket of stuff I love. <laughs> and from album to album, you know, he, he just, there's always something new going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really, the time I was living there was really Eight Bold Souls. It was Ed Wilkerson's octet. Um, it's just in the realm of the great AECM bands. Yeah, they yeah, really yeah. were phenomenal, and and they should be better remembered. I think than they, they, they had are. a record out on Thrill Jockey. Was uh, I think maybe one did I, they on Thrill Jockey? I, th- I think one of the last ones. Am I am I wrong about that? They had, it was on a rock label. I recognized though. I think when I sort of first became aware of them, but then I sort of hunted back and and and, and yeah, I'm not sure. Found I don't those records. now, but but yeah, and then that said, Wilkerson and I forget who else was. Uh, uh, Mata Bowden was in that. Aaron Dodd um, on tuba, who's later replaced by somebody. Um, wow, you're you're sorry. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't be. You're playing to... with my compulsions because now I want to be able to do it. Um, <laughs> um, the trumpeter Robert. Um, on the off chance that any of them hear this, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm the guy that was sitting in the front row all the time, and I used to know your names. But the one I remember, I won't waste time doing this. But the one I remember because it was always in his introductions of the band. He'd always get to. <laughs> He'd say everybody, and he'd say, Naomi Millinder, cello. <laughs> so Naomi Millinder, I remember. Um, I, I mean, I thought of them as sort of uh, being a progression somewhat from the Arda Ensemble. They had that sort of, you know, a fairly wide scope of, of uh, ideas that they were pulling from. And very much the Threadgill, Threadgill sextet, too. I think there's yeah. informed a lot by that. Yeah, uh, yeah, gorgeous music that people should check out. They certainly don't get name-checked enough. Right, right, right. Thank you. 
so Chicago, uh, the scene was pretty hopping in, in the 90s when you were there? It was. It was, but like I said, also, um, but it was very small. You know, the sort of Van- Vandermark thing hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. And I think Vandermark did amazing things for the city and sort of brought a lot of people into um, improvised music and defining it in new ways. And that goes into, you know, even Tortoise and some of the, you know, rock leaning acts. Yeah. That stuff wasn't happening yet. And. and Ken Vandermark. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Ken MacArthur Grant winning right, saxophonist right. composer. Um, yeah, Chicago was much quieter than when I lived there in the early 90s. Um, and like I said, everybody was always talking about like how great it is that people left. I was like, well, I'm going to leave. You know, <laughs> So I was only in Chicago for three years. I, I moved to New York, and you know, I started to hear Zorn and stuff. And I was like, okay, this is, this is really exciting. So, so, yeah, I made it to New York. What, what year did you end up in New York? 93. 93. Where did so, you move to? What, what borough? Uh, started in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. And slowly made my way from South Park Slope to Park Slope to the East Village to Washington Heights to Inwood. So I'm, I've done this northern trajectory. <laughs> so what, what, what was New York like in 1993? Does that seem like a, another world or a world that it's still there somewhere? Oh, wow. You know, I mean, first off, it's like, you know, when I moved there, everybody was already talking about how, you know, anywhere you go, people will tell you that it was better yesterday. Right? Should have been there 10 years ago. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, but I'm old enough now that I can tell other people, like, eh, it's over. You should have. <laughs> yeah, I, I was there before the Knitting Factory closed on Houston Street. So I, uh-huh. I got to go there quite a bit. Yeah, it was definitely. I mean, the, I think the big difference was there just there weren't chain stores, you know. And it really felt like New York was its own thing. And everybody was, I don't know, everybody had was sort of fighting the same fight or something. Everybody was trying to get by. Yeah. And it wasn't this faceless, you know. Kmart at um, St. Mark's Place and whatever. Yeah, my, my snarky comment down here from uh, Philadelphia that I that I hurl up towards the uh, <laughs> New York border is, uh, I keep on meaning to get back up to New York. I hear they have great Starbucks up yeah. there. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> but, I mean, all those things that attracted me to, you know, a trip to New York, you know, other music and... Uh, closing this weekend. Uh, Tomorrow's This weekend, day, really. Yeah. Oh, man, just heartbreaking. But, I mean, it really gets to the point, like, why... I'm not sure why I need to head up there so much. I mean, I guess there still is incredible music that only happens in New York, though I... I guess I'm being a bit sour grapes in the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, but it's it has definitely changed. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but you are right in the in the in the midst of it there with the the, the music scene and the jazz scene uh, in New York City. Yeah, Ooh. doing Ooh. what I could. You know, Ooh. the days of like David Murray's big band playing every Monday at the Knitting Factory was you know with yeah. Butch Morris conducting often. Was was the loft scene kind of officially dead at that point? Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, Roulette was still in the original West Broadway location. Experimental Intermedia still exists, which I think is the law feel, but it was never quite a jazz place, so I'm not sure if that if that is counts as a loft. Uh, Mark Hennon, the pianist, had a place called Piano Magic mm-hmm. that I went to a couple of times. But yeah, basically the whole loft thing I missed. Well, that, that is, I mean, I th- you know, often when you hear the sort of history of jazz trajectory in New York, it kind of goes from the loft scene to the, the downtown scene and, mm-hmm. and the Knitting Factory always always pointed out. Um, who was, who sort of cropped up in, in, in that era there? Uh, Stephen Bernstein, perhaps? Sure, yeah, Stephen Bernstein. I mean, you know, Zorn was huge. And what Zorn was doing back then was just like, I mean, he was amazing, you know, and the sort of ways that he would cross, or, you know, the ways he was incorporating anything he wanted to 
and how generously he was giving credit to just everybody, you know, to Funkadelic and Webern and Morricone and just, you know, he was very open back then about these are my building blocks, which was really exciting, you know, and, and to hear this really fast-paced music. I was living in San Francisco at the time, and mm-hmm. there were there were a handful of bands that were were working that sort of uh, mix between soundtrack music and and uh, jazz and uh, sort of other forms. It's a group called Eskimo. Were they from San Francisco? Yes, yeah, they yeah, were. Yeah, I liked them. I saw them at the Ning Factory once, and I got a couple records of theirs. Yeah, yeah really liked the group. Brubeck brothers were around, and they played mm-hmm. with some groups. I'm trying to think. There was a Clubfoot Orchestra oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. side cool. project yeah. as well that, that sort of hit that that mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was... Uh, it's uh, When you live through these things, it's hard to really think of the times. But, I mean, yeah, that was, uh, you know, this element that was in there at the times, and, and John Zorn definitely seemed to be, you know, sort of the catalyst for a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely a, a, um, a galvanizing personality. And to think of all the, the, the bands that have recorded for Zodic over the years, like I, I haven't even begun to sort of put my arms around that catalog of music. Right, right. There was a time when, how old is that label, 15 years or something? Yeah. I used to think I was going to try and keep up. <laughs> you know, no way, there's no way. So uh, what were you starting to write about uh, jazz in the 90s here in New York? Um, honestly, the first time I had something published about music, I was maybe 14. <laughs> and I started doing a, um, a record review column for a little weekly newspaper in Illinois. Really? At 14? Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, what were you reviewing at 14? God, I don't remember. I remember doing a negative review because I felt so proud of myself. <laughs> now I don't really, I don't <laughs> think I'd do that much, very often at all um, on occasion. But I, I'd rather just, there's not a big enough audience to waste time with a negative review. Yeah, you know? yeah. If, if, who, if um, Paul McCartney puts out a really bad album and you have an interesting way to say that it's bad, do it, sure. But, you know, if um, Steve Bernstein does... You don't need to kick the guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just go on to the next record. Um, I remember but, my, my, probably my most embarrassing uh, negative review was for the first album from the Beastie Boys, where I really <laughs> took them to task for being socially irresponsible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they probably cried themselves to sleep over that. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, a crime wave broke out, <laughs> um, uh, you know, for guys who had the fight for the right to party. 
But uh, yeah, but I remember giving a negative review to Billy Joel's Glass Houses. <laughs> well, you're sort of making a uh, a stand there against a certain you know commercial element, right? Right. That's honestly that's the only one I remember writing about. Yeah. Um, and so then I wrote about I did record reviews for my college newspaper. What was the name of the college paper? The Daily Vedette. The Daily Vedette, commonly okay. called the Daily Vendetta. <laughs> um, and then I guess I would do it here and there. We. I met some people who were starting a zine called Brooklyn Metro Times when I first moved to New York. So I wrote some record reviews and some other things. For, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, at the time I was going to journalism school and doing straight, like, local news journalism. Oh, yeah. Um, Where were you going to journalism Columbia. school? Columbia. Columbia, I imagine. Yeah. Um, so that was really my interest. And I always enjoyed writing about music, but I always thought that... I, I, I thought that there's more important things I was going to do. What, what issues it, were, were, you know bugging you early on there as a journalist i was i think i really wanted to write about housing um was a big thing and and health and i did do some of that you know and i worked at some newspapers in connecticut and in new jersey i kind of always knew that uh it wouldn't be forever that i would burn out i thought it would last longer than it did before i was just like <laughs> it's it's hard you know it's it's exhausting and um you're fighting with a lot of local politicians who romanticize the fight and you're just like look you've got to give me the document you know you'll give me the document okay we'll do the game you know i i I'd got i just sort of got tired of it and somebody offered me um a chance to start a web magazine at the time remember when we were all going to be millionaires off the internet yes yeah it was is this, then is this the, the, the 90s <laughs> at some point is yeah well no it's probably like 2002 maybe ah okay and i think that's when i the first time i really said, okay, I've been writing about music for a long time, very sporadically, but let's really try and do this, you know. So what was the magazine that you... It was called um, The Squid's Ear. It was a component with a Squidco online store, oh, yeah, which sure. still exists, which I was involved in starting and helped run for the first few years. They've distributed a lot of great jazz. Yeah, it's a great, great shop, yeah. What's up, Phil? Did you did you pull in any other, uh, other talent to the Squid's Ear? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was really trying to to do it as a uh, an editor and um um yeah we had a, a nice little core of other people writing for us too yeah um you've you've uh, found success as a as a music journalist uh, in a time when uh, things couldn't be of more uh, you know uh, uh, dicey and the, you know the, the seas couldn't be more choppy for uh, for, <laughs> for music journalism well that's what, what, ni- that's nice of you to say i mean i do have a a halftime job during the day that you know helps pull things together but yeah I, I get a lot of great opportunities for sure yeah in fact you have the cover story for uh, the esteemed wire magazine my first cover for the wire yeah that was yeah very nice to receive I was uh, they asked me to write about a musician you know lauren connors the guitarist who i've loved for a long time and so i was very happy to do that and then somewhere in the process it became our our i was told it was going to be a cover story i don't know if that was always the idea but i didn't know and that felt very good to to get to write a chapter of his biography. Yeah, well, t- let's talk a little bit about Lauren. Uh, you know, I still sure, want to sure. call him La- Lauren Mazakane Connors. <laughs> I first discovered him in I think '89 or so. A, a record drifted into WXPN that mm-hmm. was in their yeah, uh, giveaway me. pile that they they didn't need, and uh, uh, I was you know. Do pretty, you still have it? I do, so do you still have which, it? Which one? Do you? Uh, I. I'm gonna. That's a, that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I know that's not in the hardwire, uh, you know, <laughs> but uh, but it, you know it's definitely intriguing, and, and uh, I've gone on to you know collect other uh, 
music from him over the years. I guess you got to spend time with him when you wrote this piece. Yeah, I I also was fortunate enough to, um, you know, a few years back, 2011 and 2012, I produced two records of his, which was... Um, I'm, I should have researched better. I didn't realize <laughs> quite all, all right. these accolades. Quite all right. You produ- um, so you, produ- you produced for which, which label? For Northern Spy. Yeah. And... Uh, the the teeny bit of journalistic integrity I have in me makes me want to say, when The Wire came to me and asked me to do this story, I said, look, this is up to you. I've produced some of his records. Maybe you, know, you should recuse yourself. You decide. Yourself. You decide yes. if it's a conflict. That's what I always do. If I, think, I don't decide if I have a conflict. I put it on the table and let an editor decide. Yeah. So um, actually a couple years ago, they'd asked me to write about Lauren, and the record was pretty new. They asked me to do a blindfold test. And I told them that I'd just done the record, and they're like, no, you're too close to it. And then I remind them this time, and they said, no, you know, we think it's far enough or whatever. So so that's what happened. Yeah, I was, you know, I'm friends with um, uh, Tom and Adam from Northern Spy going back to when they were working at ESP. And so I've had the, the fortune to um, have them trust me enough to produce three records, not having any idea. You know, when they asked me, the first one was Lawrence Group Haunted House, which I love, and it was going to be the first time they've had even played together in 10 years, I think. And I just said yes, and then went home and started like Googling, like, what do record producers do? <laughs> and I sort of figured out, well, I guess it's like a movie producer, is essentially you need to figure out what has to happen for a project to move forward. That's sort of the approach I took. You know, Lauren knows what he wants his record to be. Obviously, if you're producing Rihanna, it's something else. Yeah. But um, Well, I mean, record producer can be every anything from, you know, Peter Asher to uh, you know, Steve... Uh, Steve uh, Rape Man uh, <laughs> Steve Abini right 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 uh, so yeah I mean it's somewhat up to you I guess to carve out what, what role you have what role did you have as a, a producer really did you p- pick the the songs that were going to be on or anything or? no I mean Lauren really knows what um, what he wants a project to be and that's something I learned with the recording and something that you know, I talked to him about for the Wire article is I don't, th- I certainly didn't know from listening to his records and from going to many of his concerts how fixed an idea he had of what each step will be in his, not in his career, because that makes it sound like he has a, a plan moving forward. I'm not sure that it's that, but every time he does something, he knows what he wants that to be. So with Haunted House, I mean, they just, they go in and jam. It's a amazing four-piece with Andrew Burns on guitar, Neil Magai on percussion, and Lauren's wife, Suzanne Langille, on vocals. And they do what they do. I mean, they didn't need me to tell them what to do. <laughs> I helped in editing, I helped in mixing, and and was, um, you know, it was just present for it. That made me feel a little bolder in doing the second record, which was just a duo with Lauren and Suzanne. And then I would actually, then I sort of underst- felt the confidence to put ideas forward, like, Let's just cut the guitar out of this part and leave Suzanne's voice and that sort of thing. Then the third project was me suggesting that we put together a band called Brian and the Haggards that did all instrumental covers of Merle Haggard tunes with um, Eugene Chadborn. So oh, sort of wow. bringing Eugene as, in as their vocalist, which was, I'm super proud of that record. It was really great. And I was um, had a lot more to do with mixing it and you know obviously with with Brian from the band and with Eugene's OKs and all. What Merle songs do, do they do they do on there? Oh, what is there's eight or nine songs. They do a. Um, I should have brushed up on me as well. Um, <laughs> they what the the Texas swing. The one the Bob Wills record. Yeah, they, they do a nice Bob Wills medley. Uh-huh. They do um, 
they do Okie from Muskogee. They do oh, they do a really weird um, the two December songs. If uh, if, if, if we, we make, make it, it to, to December, December yeah. and there's another December song, they kind of do a real time mashup of those or something. Uh, they do Fight Inside of Me. Um, it's a great record. Speaking of celebrity passings, Merle Haggard this year. As yeah. Well. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been you know I don't know I guess we're just getting old enough, Dan, that like we're <laughs> they're starting to hit hard. You know. Yeah, the the icons. Prince and Bowie and Ralph Stanley a few days ago and yeah. and Ornette last year and wow yeah. So uh, I did want to get, to continue on and talk a little bit more about Lauren. Oh right, Connors. Lauren. I mean, yes. his his uh, story is uh, I've only sort of picked up uh, pieces of it here, but a, a very unusual sort of musical journey he's he's made. Yeah, I mean, I think for myself, you know, I'd seen him a few times early on when I moved to New York, and then I just sort of got it, and it's something that's become very obvious in what I don't know if there's even you know a few years ago there. People are talking about weird old America and freak folk, and there are terms like that going around. I I, I, f- I fell in with that 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 crowd a bit. I'll admit. I no, I, I mean I'm, I'm I don't mean to speak disparagingly of it. It was there's yeah. great stuff happening under that banner. I just don't know if there's a banner anymore or if that's just sort of acoustic music now. I don't know what. But that I think was sort of a time when abstract blues became a much more widely practiced idea. But when I first, yeah. you know, I'd, I'd seen Lauren. I don't know how many times, but one time I was just like oh my God, this is the blues. You know, I, I hadn't heard it that way before. I was like, it's so obvious what he's doing. He's doing the blues without meter and without changes. Uh-huh. And that was pretty staggering to me to realize, you know. So yeah, he's, he's, he's an amazing musician. He's very focused on his thing. You know, he really, he knows his craft and he's pursued it. What, what kind of uh, personality uh, were you dealing with in the, in the studio there? He's a man of few words. He would be... He does make mostly instrumental music. Yes, man. yes. <laughs> a few words that seem to fit in with my idea of him. He, he was mostly, you know, generally agreeable. But when he had an idea... I mean, one thing that was really interesting was when we were recording the Haunted House record, they started, you know, maybe the third or fourth song they were doing. Two seconds in, he's like, stop, stop, just wave his hands. And then they did start again, did it again. And I couldn't hear anything. I mean, I'm not going to get in the way of it, but I was like, I wonder what's wrong. And then they started again, and he let it go, and it was great. And I don't know what it was that he was hearing or not hearing, but he definitely has very strong ideas about what should happen. And on that project, especially, he he just he always wanted he wanted everything quiet. It was uh-huh. a, the the record with Suzanne that was called "I Wish I Didn't Dream" that was made around uh, paintings by M. P. Landis that were used as visual cues for the pieces. And he just I remember he kept saying like the guitar should just be a whisper. You know, and then at the one point when I suggested let's take your guitar out entirely, immediately he's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I don't know how many musicians would agree to be like, <laughs> removed from the second part of a song, but yeah. Wow.
speaking of Prince, I, I know that you certainly have more than a, a passing interest in the. In I, I like Prince, the Purple Man as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a particularly hard passing to take. I, I have been a, you know, a long Prince fan since you know second or third record, and I really think the records he's made in the last, the recordings he's released in the last few years uh, before his passing were were you know really. Uh, I felt like he he was revving up again to, and making some of the, you know the best work of his career. Yeah, yeah. He really. I mean, I think he was even really telling us in concerts anyway. This is what it means to be a sort of elder statesman of R and B. And he was bringing Larry Graham and Chaka Khan up, and he was doing this kind of DJ part of his concerts where he was talking about P Funk and talk. And he was basically telling us, you know, respect them because I'm right behind them. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he was really making these great. It's, he wasn't doing like Parade and Love Sexy and Sign of the Times anymore. That's a young man's energy. Um, but he was making these really solid R&B records. Absolutely. It's, it's uh, yeah, it really seems like, uh, you know, a path thwarted. Like I'd, I'd, I'd like to imagine what he was going to do for the next, you know, 30 years. Oh, yeah. I had a friend who said they couldn't imagine Prince old. And I said, I could imagine him being like super cool Charlie Chaplin old man. Like, <laughs> he would be great. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. What uh, musical acts would you would you like to produce uh, if uh, those opportunities came oh, your wow. way? I used to have dreams of uh, cornering Ray Charles and giving him a proper production before he passed away. <laughs> I think if somehow like I was given a budget and like could could try and make, I would love to put Roscoe Mitchell together with some some European improvisers like Thomas Lane, uh, the analog synthesizer player and. I, I'm surprised that, uh, to my knowledge, they, they haven't really crossed that way. And I think Roscoe works so much in the sound world that matches this kind of post. I'd love to hear Roscoe and Keith Rowe, you know? I, I think that, to me, that's just so obvious, and I'm not aware that he he works with those people. Hmm. So that, I think that's the first idea that comes to mind, yeah. You're, you're also the host uh, on the... Uh... On the legendary WFMU, <laughs> the uh, you know the, the the most freeform station in the world, probably or whatever, uh, you do the show musical minotaurs, Mi- uh, miniature minotaurs, yeah, <laughs> musical minotaurs. Is that what I said? <laughs> miniature minotaurs. And uh, when what is that broadcast? Uh, well, I'm on hiatus right now. Ah. Um, I have I've been on hi- hiatus, but doing a lot of fill-ins for the last year. And you have uh, you probably have a, a page on WFMU of your past mm-hmm. shows. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. WFMU has amazing um, archives. Going back, I don't know, 12, 15 years, almost all the shows you can hear. Yeah, it is amazing. Certainly extremely difficult to find recordings. I'll, I'll find them on a playlist on WFMU, and we'll be able to, you know, tap into somebody's show. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, hear some of the most obscure and, and, and wonderful music around. What, 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 uh, when did you start doing radio? I did, for a semester, I did a radio show in college. And then I did some stuff with Free 103.9, when was this? Like in the in the two thousands. Where was that at? It's a, it was in Brooklyn. Yeah. Me and a friend sort of switched off doing a weekly show. Yeah. What, what sort of philosophy did you bring to, you know, putting together music for the radio? Oh, for Free One Hundred Three, I was really into collaging records and found things, and would do very prolonged, abstract mixes. I guess when I got to WFMU, I felt more like people were listening, and I was <laughs> I felt a little more responsible to go on mic and say what you heard certainly was overlaying things way way less i still have done it once in a while but yeah. um that's my way of of trying to get you to forget the question you asked because i what sort of <laughs> philosophy do i bring well what, I what, 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 so what sort of music were you playing what, what uh um what did you want to, the music people to I, hear music i love i mean i i if i 
can accomplish anything being on the radio, it's that I want to listeners at least for a little while to give up the idea of high and low art, you know, or intellectual and non-intellectual music or something. And if you hear me play something by AMM followed by the stylistics, you know, which I loved it. Oh, it's so amazing to go play something abstract and then just drop into like some Philly soul or some doo-wop. You can make music sound so good (laughs) like that. And, And if people are listening and if the AMM fan likes the stylistic song that they didn't know and if the the philly soul fan likes the abstract thing they didn't know that would be the the best thing in the world that i could accomplish as a as a dj that yeah nobody feels like they're above or below something that nobody feels like they don't have some sort of requisite background knowledge to have permission to listen to something i think that people get intimidated by music by strange music or by music without a meter or, or something like that or classical music, and it's interesting because I don't think that that's as true with the other arts. I think somebody can go to see a movie or go to an art museum, and they might hate it, and that's fine. But they don't say, "Well, I didn't, you know, I, I guess I'm not smart enough or something." Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a sad thing about. It. I think because music is is sort of insinuates itself into your brain, and you're not looking at anything, and I think. Maybe people are just sort of like, oh, I got lost. Yeah, yeah. And it's okay if you got lost, too. And and certainly if you learned more about it, you would be in a better position to appreciate it. But that instinct you have is valid, and, and hopefully you enjoyed it, or maybe you hated it. But that was the experience that you had that, that doesn't need more, you don't need a college class in it. I, I was pleased that I sort of felt like I got past the sort of snobbery that comes with jazz myself mm-hmm. and just realized that, you know, there's a whole sensual way to enjoy it and you don't have to know the traditions or, or you know, the the person's compositional history. You know, if it's if it feels good on your ears, then you're 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 getting the most out of it. Right. Know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it feels good on your ears. Right. <laughs> uh, people, you know, they know I'm a big jazz fan. I'll talk about Ellington or something. They'll be like, what's the one Duke Ellington record to get? And I, I realized the sort of intimidation of, you know, conquering an artist like that because there is you know 300 recordings mm-hmm. to choose right, from right. and you know there's a an intimidation of getting your arms around it in a way so what is the one duke ellington record to get uh far east suite uh, that's a good one yeah, that's I mean, a good one <laughs> <laughs> today you know he has to be tomorrow it'll, it'll be piano in the foreground um i love the um i mean i wouldn't say it's the one but the unknown sessions particular favorite of mine oh my as gosh. well i have it yeah, on yeah. vinyl and cd yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah that's a that's a session that you know there's nothing to draw you to it to say this is the ellington record to get but uh, mm-hmm. yeah just a, a tour de force of pleasure right uh, that record the one that holds a soft real soft spot in my heart is um because my parents had three jazz records um, I asked my mom later, and she said she thought maybe somebody left them at a party or something because they didn't. I never heard them played. Yeah, three more than my parents had. <laughs> <laughs> they had, oh gosh, Billie Holiday, Lady Day in concert or something. It's a live mm-hmm. record where she's holding a a little dog, and the dog's kind of nestled nestled into her chest, so you can only see one eye of the dog. So it looked like this little cyclops monster to me when I was a kid. <laughs> And they had a weird Art Blakey record that I finally found online and asked WFMU's Art Blakey expert, Erwin um, Chusid. And he's like, how did your parents... It's like some... It's not a weird... It's, not, it's a weird issue. It's a European issue of one of the records. 
And they had Duke Ellington's Jazz Party in Stereo, uh-huh. which is uh-huh. one of the best record titles ever. <laughs> and Dizzy Gillespie's on that one, and there's a big vibraphone piece. Yeah, 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 yeah. They um, they brought them into the studio, which certainly wasn't the only time this happened, but they brought them into the studio at midnight or something, had a small audience there, and just sort of tried to make a club atmosphere. And that was the one I really... Well, I mean, I love the Billie Holiday record, too. The Art Blakey one confused me a little bit. <laughs> then that came out on CD, and they took the in stereo off the title. Oh, really? And I was like, what are you doing? You had the, this... And, and off the... So there's just, like, this extra red block on the cover. And I was like, you really need to take in stereo off, because we're <laughs> in the future now or something. People? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Horrible. But, um, I mean, it's not his best record, but it's one that I'm really quite fond of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I that's a subject I could go on about but uh, Allington was for for me you know one of the primary music obsessive things to, to get into I you know for a couple of years I bought a couple of Allington records every week and wow, wow. absorbed all that stuff and, and then I started having dreams where uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes I'd be too afraid to talk to Duke Ellington I would just watch him from afar and talk <laughs> with other band members about Duke oh my god <laughs> and then other times you know I I would get to speak to him and, and Billy Strayhorn all these it was an intense thing but it was really about like that you know, at the at the most profound levels that you have with a relationship with an artist, like it was really like getting to know how a genius thinks. You know? mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Um, I, the first two times I saw Prince were in 1988, within three days, and that'd be like Sign of the Times tour, maybe. Yeah, it was Love Sexy. Love Sexy. Okay. My dreams weren't as as. Am I actually going to tell one of these? I'll tell one of them. I don't know about the other one. It's not, it's it's still rated G. Okay. Um, With Prince, you never know where right. this is going to go. I had one dream that it was, I was at the concert, I was at the seats I was in, you know, at this, was it maybe the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago? I'm not even sure now. And he was encoring with um, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter, <laughs> the Herman's Hermits tune. <laughs> Know it well, and he's kind of doing his cute act like in the Raspberry Beret video, and um, they're bringing all these women up from the stage, sort of in a line, and he's like walking along between them, and that's still in my memory. Like I have heard Prince cover that, which he never did. I'm sure I don't know as far as I know, but I I'm, I think we can be pretty comfortable knowing that he didn't cover Mrs. Brown. Yeah, I love daughter. But I have the Prince cover of that in my mind. I can play it. He was he was very slight on the musical influence. I think. Uh, Prince on the mu- <laughs> the mu- British musical you know sound didn't really creep into his I guess not much. yeah he did he covered the Stones on occasion <laughs> but yeah not, I guess not a whole lot of British stuff <laughs> and um, then the other Prince dream I had this one's a little weirder but um, I was in college during those concerts and I had a dream that I went home from college because my mom had a new baby which was already kind of weird. And so me and my sister, she went to a different college. We both come to, to meet the new baby. And we get there, and, and my mom and her friends are kind of standing around, and the baby's on the floor dancing. And the baby is just a teeny two-scale prince. And they're all, like, giggling, like, oh, he's so cute. I was like, no, this is weird. That's, that's not a baby. It was a prince humunculus? Yes, yes. <laughs> So yeah, those wow. are my my two Prince dreams. My my, my, <laughs> <laughs> my most embarrassing Prince story, unfortunately, doesn't take place in the dream world. It's more a real world, <laughs> and uh, it's it's more of a, a fashion question. I I uh, went to see Purple Rain at the very first show, dressed completely in in purple scrub gear. 
which was very popular at the time. <laughs> well, and it was kind of a Dr. Fink thing, too. Exactly, so, yeah. yeah I, works, I, I kind works. of went cosplaying as Dr. Fink to the first <laughs> <laughs> and I was here at the first show thinking, you know, there might be, you know, a mob or something, but, uh-huh. you know, it, it hadn't quite built to that level then. Right, right. Have you gone back to watching the, the, the films of Prince? Yeah, you know, I saw, why can't I think of the name of that movie? <laughs> Parade. Um, Under uh, Cherry Moon. Under Cherry Moon, yeah. I saw that on the big screen recently. Wow. And I'd only seen it when it came out. So, I've, you know, that's the second time I'd seen it in my life. It was fun to watch. It's not great. You know, but it was better than I thought it was going to be, actually. Uh, the actress in it is, uh, again, with the names. Yeah. She's gone on to be a, a She has. A major, I remember major people actress. I was with were talking about it. <laughs> I'm not as good with Kristen Scott Thomas. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and in per- black and white, the, the, mm-hmm. the film as well. I mean, that was somewhat of a bold, stylistic. And with no um, live music scenes. Oh. Um, it's just a narrative. I mean, there's music, but it's a narrative film. Um, With Prince getting directorial credit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw Purple Rain. I saw a double bill, I guess, last year. A double bill, that's what you call it, a double feature, of Purple Rain with um, this, is it a Ni- Senegalese or Nigerian movie? Did you hear about this? I have. The remake this. of Purple Rain. Yeah, yeah. It's called um, Rain the Color Red with a Little Blue in it because they didn't have the word purple, <laughs> which is beautiful. <laughs> it's it's good, It's a, but, but I saw Purple Rain... It honestly might have been the first time I've seen it on a big screen. I'm not sure. And, you know, that movie has problems. It's, it's, there's continuity problems. I don't know when medics come in and do a, a tape outline on the floor for an attempted suicide. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there's some problems. But it's I like... Of <laughs> there's like 45 minutes of of amazing live footage you know yeah. that's what everybody wanted out of it anyway you know yeah. so i remember the, the sort of misogyny hitting me you know when i saw it again the, the the cheap laugh of them throwing the woman in the dumpster coming across as you know out of tone in some sort of way yeah yeah but you know prince is doing the movies that he grew up on for for better or worse i mean to his credit he quit making movies you know i think that he didn't do things he wasn't good at you yeah know. yeah i i haven't i still haven't caught up with graffiti bridge Ever. I haven't seen that since sometime in the 80s. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, he, he goes back to having a lot of concert footage in that one, and you get to see who. It's probably Mavis Staples. Mavis Staples, yeah. yeah. At the time and stuff. Storyline's probably sloppy again. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But on, on a high note, I will say, I've always held up uh, with all the, the all-time great concert films, the Prince-directed Sign of the Times. Yeah. Phenomenal. Uh, yeah, everybody needs to go back and take a second look at that, even though I think it's out of print at the time. It's been very hard to get on DVD. Yeah, um, they. I have two copies of it because they did it as one of those imprints on the newspaper that Prince was doing in London for a while. Not imprint, but you know, paste on. Oh yeah, yeah. So I, I got one of those, and then I got a DVD imported from somewhere in a proper box. I have one from Canada. Maybe mine's Canadian too. Yeah. But I don't know why that hasn't been, you know, any even theatrical release because a lot of people have enjoyed Purple Rain and stuff. And yeah, Sign of the Times is just phenomenal. I mean, that, yeah, you're right. That's up there with the. The Jonathan Demme, you know, Neil Young and Talking Heads movies and just the great concert movies, yeah. yeah. Um, is there anything else we should uh, get to before we uh, before we get night? to this concert we're supposed to be going <laughs> yes, to? <laughs> yes, I looked at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'll just say that I'm 
you know, I, I love coming back to Philadelphia. And, and damn, this weekend, I mean, I know every weekend's not like this, but between the Ars Nova, we could have talked about Derek Bailey for sure, but there, Ars Nova's doing two nights of um, Derek Bailey compositions, or maybe one night, but two nights with John Butcher and people here. Somewhere they're doing Morton Feldman in town tonight, who's another just brilliant, my God. And then we're going to be hearing The Crossing with um, seven composers responding to Buxtehoida cantatas. Wow, Philly's Philly's hot this weekend. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know. And Perubu tonight. Oh, really? They're yeah, playing yeah. tonight? Yeah. Uh, and they, they're still sounding great. I'm not sure who's exactly in the band in, the, in this time, but uh, the, the recent, you know, uh, David Thomas and Perubu recordings have been wonderful. Right, right, right. Well, thank you so much for thank you. Uh, it's fun to coming out, Kurt. Yeah. Uh, one, two, three, four. That's it for our show. Thanks to Kurt for sitting down to chat. Check for his bylines everywhere, and you can check out the archives of his music show, Miniature Minotaurs, at WFMU.org. You can catch past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch me spinning jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST at WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Falker.com and check back in two weeks for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.